0: and welcome to The Bunker, your need to know on news and politics, with me, Jude Rogers. This summer marks the 50th anniversary of a vivid piece of British cinema. If I told you it involved a policeman dressed in a smock, Christopher Lee in full makeup, and a 50-foot wooden figure on a clifftop about to be lit, you'll either think I'm mad or, oh God, oh Jesus Christ, you'll know I'm talking about the Wicker Man. This 1973 classic is an eerie rendering of the countryside and the pinnacle of the genre known as folk horror. Other examples are recent films like Midsummer and the work of directors like Mark Jenkin and Ben Wheatley and writers like Ben Myers and Andrew Michael Hurley. There's a longing for the dark underbelly of the countryside across the arts in Britain. But where does it come from and what does it say about us? To explore this, I'm talking today to the architect of the BBC Radio 4 New Weird Britain series, editor of alternative music website, The Quietus, organiser of the best-named summer weekender in Britain to my book, Acid Horse, and all-round druid of the Wiltshire Hills, John Doran. Hi, John. How are you?
1: Hi, hey Jude. How's it going?
0: Well, Very well, thank you. I hope you don't mind me calling you a druid of the Wiltshire Hills, but you do have that fabulous beard at the moment, and you are speaking to us from the Wiltshire Hills. So let's start with brass tacks. How would you describe folk horror?
1: I'm tempted to say spurious and completely made up. So according to one of our writers, Adam Scavell, he wrote this definitive book called Folk Horror, Hours Dreadful and Things Strange. He calls it like a prism of a term. And I think I get what he means in that the farther you get away from the source, the more diffused and less intense the light becomes. So it's mainly used like when we think about three specific films. And those three films are Blood on Satan's Claw, The Wicker Man, like you just said, and The Witchfinder General, the so called unholy trinity. And I think, you know, you get this term, it kind of cropped up in reviews and stuff like that. And in fact, one reviewer, a guy called Rod Cooper, used this phrase to describe the film that would become Blood on Satan's Claw when he first saw it in 1970. But the way that you're using the term folk horror today, I think it was first used in its modern sense by Piers Haggard, who's the director of Blood on Satan's Claw, and he was looking back retrospectively at the film when he was speaking to Fangoria magazine about it about 20 years ago. And then this... um, Term was further back-engineered and given substance and ultimately made popular, I think, by Mark Gattis in the 2010 BBC series, The History of Horror. Mark Gattis drew the link between these three films, the uh, so-called unholy trinity, and I think he essentially drew attention to how a certain strand of British film creates a link between the landscape and folkloric traditions. And I I think, you know, you can make three generalisations about most canonical folk horror, and then it uses folklore to create not just a sense of horror, but maybe a sense of unease or a sense of eeriness. It definitely presents a clash between the modern and the ancient. And then also in doing all of this, it creates its own folklore like I see folk horror existing in 2023 in kind of two completely separate areas. And like one is this kind of like already this kind of hidebound, cliched set of signifiers, like children wearing animal masks and (laughs) uh, windswept Saxon churches and creaking pub signs. And I think that's kind of where folk horror is like less interesting, but also... I think it's still, like, a vital influence in the arts, generally speaking. You know, I, I find, like, I read some folk horror influence short stories. But also, I'd say, you know, I find it in music. I'm not interested in sitting around in some pub with a lot of boring guys going on about what constitutes true folk horror in films but i can find folk horror say for example right across the recorded output of gazelle twin you know so yeah i i I think um i think it's different things to different people jude
0: Mm. so there's this risk of it becoming sort of fetishized in a way or there is a fetishization of it, but it's also very creative. Thinking about this, is it too basic to say we're interested in folk horror now because we're living in an unstable moment in history? I'm thinking about this, you know, from my writing about folk music. You know, folk music seems to have a revival, you know, once every ten years or whatever. Folk music collecting was at its busiest around the First World War. There was a big boost in the early 60s when you know there was the threat of the bomb, and it seems to be this desperation to return to some sort of primal idea of ourselves.
1: I think it is simplistic when it comes to folk horror. I think it's such a complex thing that I think maybe you can say there's a secondary link there, but no more than that. I think like the received wisdom that tough times make for great protest music. This is another thing that I just I, I don't like. I like it's the sort of thing that journalists like saying, but the more you dig into it, the more it starts fraying and kind of falling mm. apart. I mean, it's good because it forces us to study time periods in much closer detail. Like in the 1960s, there was an occult revival, which you could link you know, in part to a post-war breakdown in gender roles. There's an emergence of a Western counterculture, the rise of psychedelic thinking. There's a further erosion of the influence of traditional organised religion. And then as the decade ends, you've got, like, links. There's definite links between the continued rise in the occult, the intensification of horror films and the visceral reaction against the war in Vietnam and the fear of nuclear annihilation, and this all kind of, you can see it sort of congealing in the background as heavy metal's born via Black Sabbath. We're clearly going through very troubling and difficult period in history. It's understandable that you might look at people as wanting to look back to connect with simpler times, but... Is that as important as the fact that we've now got a newer generation, fully divorced from religious upbringing, fully engaged with the idea of self-identification, who are free to find new off-the-shelf communities and ideologies online? So, like, I think of like folk horror. Isn't like folk horror just a smaller symptom of a bigger? Thing You know, like folk horror is tiny compared to the idea of the Tumblr witch or the YouTube occult influencer or the reinvigoration of tarot and horoscopes. Those things are massive compared to folk horror. So, like, you know, maybe folk horror's popularity is actually ridden in on the coattails of a much bigger revitalization of interest in the occult. Also, here's another thing. These unstable times we're living through they're quite magical themselves in the horror, you know, like the architects of popularism, and that's at the far left and the far right, characters like Steve Bannon and Alexander Dugan in Russia, they're essentially magical thinkers, devotees of esoteric philosophers like Julius Evola. Like The things like the way that misinformation has thrust us into this age of post-truth, it's an act of black magic and... The use of memes to sway public opinion is a form of chaos magic. So I don't even know that I see these kind of things as being oppositional. If people want to look back fondly at a time when things were more mystical, things are pretty bloody mystical at the moment, I think.
0: (laughs) (laughs) it's a good very interesting way of thinking about it god i don't like the idea of steve bannon as a magical being it's quite frightening in a really interesting guardian essay um back in 2019 andrew michael hurley who's the author of one of my favorite folk horror books of recent years the lonely says a folk horror can be thought about as an antidote to nationalism the argument goes because it provides a mirror on the romanticizing of ourselves and the land we live on what do you think about this
1: Well, it makes sense on paper. And, you know, I'm not going to knock this guy because it's the sort of thing that I would probably say in a review myself. But, you know, I think maybe it's a notional or symbolic antidote to nationalism. And even then, it's probably under very specific circumstances. And It probably helps if you listen to Radio 4 or if you read The Guardian or you've got a sub to the (laughs) LRB. I think this is such an important subject that, like, I think, you know, you should speak really straightly about it and that if you want to make any kind of useful stand against nationalism – then you have to proactively declare yourself anti-fascist. You have to go out and stage physical counter-protest. And you have to face these people down in the street. You know, you have to occupy the same spaces that they've infested. The trouble with folk horror is I think its symbology is more easily co-opted by the far right than anyone who's a liberal, you know, anything pertaining to paganism or pre-Christian culture or even any culture that looks back warmly to a pre-industrial kind of bullshit Arcadia, like, (laughs) you know, all of these kind of zones of thinking, you have to keep a sharp eye out for far-right infestation. Like you said, it's happened in folk music, it's definitely happened in black metal We should be watching folk horror itself quite carefully, I think, you know. The trouble with these images and symbols is that, like, people should be honest and admit the fact that we're interested in them is because they're dark, you know. They have a dark magnetism, and that's why we like them. There's a perception that it's hard for artistic people to operate when they're being didactic, no one wants to be the Ken Loach of uh, folk horror, do they? You know, <laughs> <laughs> but but look, but here's the thing, though. You know, like in 2023, if you're saying you're apolitical, that in itself is a political stance. You know, and it's a narrow-shouldered political stance, to be precise. I think there's a fundamental flaw with seeing folk horror as a corrective to nationalism, white supremacy, fascism, and even. Well, actually, patriarchy is different, and we'll come to that in a second. But when you're talking about nationalism, there's a flaw, and that's simply because folk horror itself springs from quite a conservative place. Like, Blood on Satan's Claw took full advantage of a prurient interest in the witch cult of the 60s. It didn't come from the witch cult of the 60s, it's more like an establishment leer, you know, and it's the same old bullshit which is in a lot of mainstream horror which is like female sexuality isn't to be trusted and you know don't get me started on the wicker man bloody hell (laughs) i I love that film but lord summer isle is everything that's wrong with the traditional idea of the counterculture hierarchical, patriarchal, feudal, he's disgustingly rich, he's an establishment landowner, you know, and he clearly believes that all of this cash and position puts himself above moral and judicial law and that how can we look to such conservative films to offer an antidote to gross nationalism? Like, I think things have improved in folk horror in that, I would say the more creatively successful and convincing folk horror films that I've really enjoyed recently, Ennis Men, The Witch, especially The Lamb, which I think is brilliant, Border, yeah, and *Midsummer* as well, they're all centred around the female experience. They're less kind of patriarchal, you know. So I think that in terms of kind of patriarchal structures, maybe folk horrors better equipped to attack those structures rather than the structures of nationalism, although they are linked, obviously, you know. And I have to say, even though it's kind of my area, it's also something that heavy metal is often guilty of, and it's this thing called exscription. It's not misogyny, it's exscription it's different. It's imagining like a world where women don't play any active role. You know, mm. So you end up with something that's just really retrogressive instead of something that's genuinely progressive. I was thinking about this last night, and I wanted to say, I wanted to come up with an idea of folk horror existing in a zone where maybe it's not been recognised, but it's still quite popular. And I think where it's at its most effective, and it's a mix of weird fiction and folk horror, at times, not all the time, but at times, and it's the TV show Atlanta. That, mm, yeah, like, yeah. So, like, that shows you how folk horror does potentially have the power to very effectively attack white supremacy. And who would have thought, you know, a TV show about the rise of a Georgian rapper, Paperboy, and his manager, Ern, would be the kind of crucial... You know, it is one of the most crucial artifacts of weird culture in the 21st century, I think.
0: I love how this conversation has kind of gone on to Atlanta. I did not expect that. Um, I wanted to ask why you think rural locations have become such a massive focus for horror as well. You know, going a bit deeper into it, there's this yearning for the rural and the countryside you know, you and I are people who've both moved from cities to the countryside. There is an idea of what the countryside represents, which, you know, as you and I live in it, we know it's not, you know, fairy tale chocolate box. It's a messy, dangerous place. Quite often people from going through all kinds of different things living in a very different environment. What is this interest in the countryside about in terms of creative people in 2023, do you think?
1: So in terms of creative people, this kind of zones in on the idea behind that I had with Alana Chance about, you know, New Word Britain, which was just looking at the very real process of people getting, you know, gentrification reaching its end point where you get pushed so far out of town that you have to leave town altogether, you know, and so we were looking at people, moving to old mill towns we were looking at people moving to the coast and we were looking at people moving to the countryside so i think there's just a very real financial reason for it Mm. covid has disrupted the whole kind of process so you know i think we have to wait for the dust to settle to think to look at how things are happening now but in terms of making folk horror films though is it simply because it's cheaper to make films in the countryside i mean i'm not even being glib it's like Mm. like if you wanted to make a horror film you could just get you and your mates and some digital cameras and a bag of makeup and drive to (laughs) a national park or a forest and do it you can't do that in a city You know, Mm -hmm. so there is so there is a kind of an issue of access there, but really, I always think of like horror as festering in places where we don't examine, right? And you always look back and see that a lot of horror has been addressing underexamined social and political neuroses. And to me, there are loads of reasons why there could be very strong rural resonances. There's definitely some kind of post-imperial and post-industrial energy to be found in the eeriness of, like, farmhouses. And here's something else. Like, I think, like, you know, I'm surprised that the idea of the money generated by the slave trade hasn't exploded in British filmmaking yet, but it will do. That's in the post, I think. But that's not what strikes me at the moment. At the moment, there are about two or three things, actually. There's one area where we're not living in a post-industrial country and that's in the way that we raise and then dispatch livestock the most obvious reading of texas chainsaw massacre is essentially it's an animal rights film you know like men are the monsters and men become serial killers because they've had they've got to practice on animals first. And I think like if I look around at a lot of kind of modern day rural shockers like the dark and the wicked and the lamb and several others. I think lurking in the background all of these scenes that are done in like cow sheds and lamb enclosures and pig pens and stuff like that with like hooks hanging in the background and machinery just out of sight. Look, there was a time when it was bad enough that we were kind of chowing down on burgers and sausages and not really thinking about how this meat was made. But now you've got this added kind of pressure, of the idea that, you know, you and me as the average Joe or whatever, you know, there's one way we can make a difference in terms of climate crisis, and that's switching to like a plant-based diet. And I'm saying this as a meat eater, you know. So I think that when i see kind of film set in the countryside i'm thinking primarily about the idea of veganism and the the kind of specter of climate crisis Mm. is really looming large in the background i think
0: One of my theories of the rise of folk horror is the age of the people making it, you know, people of the age of, you know, you and me, John, who grew up in the 70s and 80s when genuinely terrifying rural dramas and public information films were on TV all the time. (laughs) So it's in the hands of the makers as well. Do you agree with that? You know, and which of those things do you think were the most influential?
1: All right. So when I was a kid, I wasn't allowed to watch much TV. So I don't actually remember all of this Scarfolk stuff from the first time round, although I do get a kick out of it now. And I totally agree with what you're saying, but it's not my direct experience. So, like, I love Children of the Stone. I think the stone tape is, like, you know, one of my favourite all-time bits of TV, but I only saw them as an adult. So, like, the, my one exception in terms of kind of soaking up a proto-folk horror aesthetic it would have been via Doctor Who, either Mm. either, either via the TV show, the target novelizations, or the comic. So you had these stories like the Stones of Blood or the Demons, but interestingly, at the end of the day, the rational mind, science, and technology would always win. Mm. And, like, there was one comic strip that really kind of terrorized me as a kid, though. So, like, Doctor Who is he's helping this bunch of humans escape from like a nuclear war damaged city and it's swarming with mutant cannibals. And they imagine that as long as they could get on this kind of really dangerous train, they'll make it out to the utopia of the countryside and everything will be all right. And unusually for the comic, like the the, the Doctor wasn't successful and they all die. It was really horrible, actually. <laughs> and so like this, the strip ends with like Doctor goes on his own in his TARDIS to the countryside and he steps out and it's this irradiated acid rain nightmare that's utterly devoid of light and sunshine and for me this was like a foreshadow of like the one bit of tv that changed my life which was threads personally speaking that's what influenced me and it was different to folk horror it's more in the realm of cosmic pessimism because it it gave you this really terrifying idea that it didn't matter where you were In the city, in the countryside, in the suburbs, it doesn't matter what class you are, whether you're working class, middle class, upper middle class, you're absolutely screwed. And it's different to folk horror in that it's ahistorical, it's hellish and it's merciless, you know, so utterly devoid of hope. I don't really feel like folk horror is like that. Don't get me wrong, I do love that vibe, but I really hope that kind of aesthetic doesn't spread too far. I like coming across it once in a while. I would hate it if it became just this generic thing. It would ruin it, really, you know. like The stuff like Scarfolk and interesting public safety films, I treat a bit like an unexploded grenade, to be honest.
0: <laughs> so thinking of folk horror now, you know, with all your knowledge of music and films and TV, what would be your recommendations for um, Bunker listeners to engage with?
1: I'm going to say the Swedish fantasy film Border, directed by Ali Abassi, and it's just absolutely unique. It really is a very human and very sensitive and very warm film. I also would recommend, in terms of films, the Icelandic film The Lamb. Again, it's another film set on a farm, but it goes into places that maybe you wouldn't expect. And its connection with actual Icelandic folklore is really, really strong. I mentioned Gazelle Twin earlier, and she has a new album coming out soon. And there's a very, very strong kind of theme of the unexplained and folk horror running through that. I'm going to be speaking to her for the quietest uh, very soon. I would say that some of the issues we've talked about today, like the kind of rise of nationalist kind of viewpoints and this kind of pernicious idea of escaping to a pre-industrialised past are things that have dealt with really well on their album, Pastoral. In terms of literature, there's a guy who died recently called D.M. Thomas. His third novel, The White Hotel, was an unexpected hit, and it nearly won the Booker in 1981. It's like a masterpiece of modern... Weird art. But the book he wrote before that is called Birthstone, and it's very much about folklore intruding into the modern day in Cornwall around the kind of various Neolithic sites, and it's very much kind of folk horror.
0: Fantastic. I haven't read that one. I did read The White Hotel as an impressionable youth, I remember. (laughs) Thank you, John, so much for joining me in the bunker today.
1: My pleasure.
0: Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, please support The Bunk on Patreon. For as little as £3 a month, you can get extras, including your episodes ad-free and other goodies. I'm Jude Rogers, don't have nightmares, and thanks for listening.
1: The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Jude Rogers. The producer was Kasia Tomashevich. Audio production was by me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. And the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production.